The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. As we return now to Exodus, we come to uh, just a spectacular event in redemptive history, and that is the people of God at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Recently I was speaking at the Impact, the College and Career um, Retreat, and I was asking people to think with me, if you could be there at any moment in biblical history, to see it and to experience it, what would you choose? And people gave various options, and uh, I think for me this would be one I would choose to actually be at the foot of Mount Sinai when God descended on it in dark cloud and thunder and lightning and earthquake and fire, to see it and to let it do its work in me. What we have instead of time travel, which is biblically and physically impossible, instead we have faith. We can read it in scripture and we can learn about it and we can let God do its, his work in us. I believe when God assembled the people at Mount Sinai, at the base of the mountain at that point in redemptive history, he was going for one thing in particular. More than anything, he wanted them to be afraid. He wanted them to feel terror. I mean stark terror. There's no question in my mind. He wanted them afraid. He even says it in Deuteronomy at one point where he says, Oh, that they would fear me always. And I think that that's something we miss. We're kind of happy people and we want to keep being happy all the time and frankly there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being joyful. We're actually even commanded to be joyful. But I really think that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of joy. And I think we kind of need to go through Sinai and to understand what was going on there in order to have the true joy that God would, would uh, have for us. You know we have a hard time understanding uh, John Newton's words, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." We understand the second part, and grace my fears relieved. We want all our fears relieved. But we don't understand why it would be gracious for God to teach us to fear him. We don't understand that. And, and to me, I don't think that's just one time, you know, before we come to faith in Christ, and then from then on we never fear again. Well, I know in Romans 8 it says we're not a slave again to fear. But I think that the fear of the Lord is always abiding in us, that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, which brings order and honor and glory to him. Why else would there be so much teaching in the New Testament about hell? You really think that was written for the reprobates, for the people who have no interest in the scripture? No, it's written for us. That we might read it and that we might fear him and that we might walk in all his ways. So I think if we look at Exodus 19, we're going to see that God was trying for something. He was reaching for something. He was creating a circumstance where this would come about and it was fear. Listen in Exodus 19, verse 16 and following. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like, a, like the smoke from a furnace, 
the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet trumpet grew louder and louder then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain so Moses went up and the Lord said to him go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish for even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them Moses said to the Lord that the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy the Lord replied go down and bring Aaron up with you but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them so Moses went down to the people and told them now it's been a little while since we've looked at Exodus let's try to set the overall context I was looking at an outline of the whole book of Exodus and I saw kind of a four-part division of the book the first is slavery the second salvation the third Sinai and the fourth sacrifice those are kind of the four basic parts sacrifice or sanctuary or you could say sacrificial system let me speak a little more plainly and less homiletically okay it's easy to remember the S's but the first part is a description of Israel in their life of bondage and slavery when another king who grew up and took control of Egypt who knew not Joseph and so they labored and they were suffering and struggling in slavery second is salvation first with the introduction of the deliverer Moses and his personal history and then Moses's call at the burning bush and God's command to go back God is intending to save them from bondage this is not salvation in the ultimate sense no it's a picture of ultimate salvation but it's really just salvation from physical bondage from slavery and so the deliverer the savior with a lowercase s Moses was sent back to to Egypt and then we see God move in a mighty way through the ten plagues culminating in the Passover the plague on the firstborn and then the deliverance through the Red Sea in which finally Pharaoh is uh, destroyed his army is destroyed and he can follow them no longer and so they're saved they're delivered they're rescued from slavery that's the second major division of the book the third now we come here in Exodus 19 at last to Sinai and in this in the next five chapters or so we're going to get the the regulations at Mount Sinai we're gonna get the law of Moses Mount Sinai then represents the law of God now there's more laws than just in these five chapters there are many laws but this represents uh, the law of God and all that Paul means in Romans 7 and all the other places he describes the law its function and its purpose this is the law that was given and then finally the the rest of the book for the most part is just the description of the setting up of the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and its curtains and its and its silver loops and its posts and its stands and its and its arrangement and all of its regulations and all of its implements and accoutrements the sacrificial system set up at the end now we're coming here to Mount Sinai and as we come to Mount Sinai God is in a very awesome awesome way setting the scene now this is the third day they've been sanctifying themselves setting themselves apart as holy abstaining from sexual relations perhaps fasting seeking God in prayer and preparing for this great day now remember that these people have already seen God do the ten plagues 
Remember that they've already walked through the Red Sea. They've seen it wall up on each side and then crash back down on Pharaoh. And they've seen the remnants of Pharaoh's mighty army washed up on the seashore. They've already seen all this. This is, this is fresh in their minds. And so when they're brought to the, to the base of the mountain, they are ready to be afraid because they've already seen God do these incredible things. Furthermore, God told them earlier in this chapter uh, that there would be limits around the mountain. Now look at verse 12 with me, if you would, in uh, Exodus 19:12. It says, put limits uh, for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. So this is in everyone's minds. And later in Hebrews 12, we've already heard the reading. Uh, it says they could not bear the command that was spoken if even an animal touches the mountain. It must be stoned. So that this is in their mind. And in effect, God is creating in every way a sense of awe and wonder and fear as for the three days the people have been preparing to meet with God. Now, that this was God's intention can't, can't be doubted. God originally, when he called Moses, said, this will be the sign that you know that I've sent you when you bring them here to this mountain and they worship me on this mountain. So let's put that together. The people will worship God by their response to what God is doing at that mountain. The fear of the Lord there, uh, which was welling up inside the hearts of each person in the, in the camp, and it says it was, everyone in the camp trembled. That's worship. That is worship. They were terrified, and that is worship. And that God wanted to bring the people to himself can't be doubted either. Earlier in, in Exodus 19, look what it says in verse 3 and following. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you see that? God was bringing the people to himself. Therefore, you should really have a question at this moment. Why the limits around the mountain? What is going on there? If God is going to descend to the mountain, why does he put a fence, as it were, or barrier around the base of the mountain and give the command that if anyone comes up on the mountain, they must be stoned? Well, this, I believe, is the central theme of the Old Covenant. I could, I could sum it up this way. This far and no further. This far and no further you may come. Now, I could, I could prove that again and again, and as we're going to get into the, the tabernacle with all of its curtains, I still don't know how I'm going to preach that. I'm trying to figure that out. We may do kind of quick overviews of ten chapters at a time. I don't think I'm going to go curtain by curtain, ring by ring, rope by rope. But I think clearly there's, there are barriers being set up to our free access to God. There are rules and regulations. There is a holy place, and then there's a most holy place. And there are rules about, about who may go into the one and who may not, and who may go into the other and who may not, which is basically everyone, even including the high priest, except one day of the year, when he brings the blood of the sacrifice and then gets out of there quick. If I were him, I would. There's a sense of the fear of God and barriers 
And they must have been substantial, I think, because the Hebrew word implies that it would have taken a forcing through or breaking through to get up the mountain. Just out of love, I think the, the ones building the fence and the barriers would have made strong, sturdy barriers. And God, later in this, in this account, is going to call the people up, I mean, call Moses up and, and say, warn the people. He says, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through. I'm reading verse 21. To see the Lord and many of them perish. And then in verse 23, Moses reminds the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourselves warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through. Do you see that in verse 24? To come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. And so there are these barriers around the base of the mountain. God is coming to the mountain. So the mountain represents uh, holy ground. Most of the hymns that we sang, Eric uh, chose, were about Mount Zion. Well, that's heaven. You couldn't even get on Mount Sinai. It says in Psalm 24, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we don't. We couldn't get onto even Mount Sinai. There are these barriers there. And so the Lord wants the people to fear him because he's about to give them the law. He's about to give them the Ten Commandments. And so he sets the stage. Now, look what he says again in verse 16. We see how the Lord is reaching out for or trying for fear on the part of the people. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Think of the senses here, the sights, the sounds, the smells. And what it would have been like to be with maybe as many as two million people gathered around this mountain and coming right up perhaps to the barrier but not able to go any further. And you're seeing, I think it would have looked something like a volcano. I mean, if you could imagine, maybe there's no lava coming down the sides, but definitely there's fire on the top. There's dark, dark clouds. There's thunder and lightning. And there's terrifyingly loud sound. I don't know about this trumpet blast, the indication is that it was supernatural. It could have been a natural thing, but I don't think so because it just keeps getting louder and louder. Who's blowing that trumpet? It must have been a heavenly sound. And it also was, was seeking for the terror and the fear of the people. And so it says clearly in verse 16, mission accomplished. Everyone in the camp trembled. They were terrified. Is this a good thing? Is it a good thing to tremble before the Lord? Well, whether it's a good thing or not, if the Lord appeared to you in some way, you would do it. There's no doubt about it. Every time that somebody has some vision of God, they're always on their face trembling and unable to speak. Whether it's Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, or it's Daniel unable to get up, he needs strength, or Ezekiel, or over and over Isaiah, the, the, the vision of God reduces you to rubble as a person. And, and the, the trembling, because we're sinners and we feel it inside. Now, as the people stand at the base of the mountain, they're looking up there to meet with God, and God descends in a way to say, you are not welcome near me. And that's the message, isn't it? You're not, you're not welcome close to me, because I'm pure and holy, and you're not. And so we've got these barriers. Now, another aspect of this that is so fascinating, thus far you may come and no further is the fact that God is concerned toward the end about something, isn't he? 
He warns Moses about it specifically, and I just read it a moment ago. He says, please go down and warn the people not to force their way across the fence and come up the mountain. Now, this might not strike you as strange, but it does me. Suppose there were a fence around the base of, a, of an active volcano, and the volcano were actually active at that moment. Would you need to be persuaded not to scale the barbed wire fence and go up the mountain? I'd be running the other way. I'd be wondering if there was a bus out of the region. I'd be doing everything I could to get away from that mountain. And yet God's concerned that they're going to do exactly the opposite. Now you would say, well, the Lord was mistaken. He didn't really know us. He should have known that we'd be clamoring and screaming and running away from him. No, no. No, we're going to do exactly the opposite. Despite the fear, we want to be close to God, don't we? I mean, at, at, at the root of our being, and God knows it because he created us that way. And he said the real temptation for them is not going to be to run away. They want to get close. And they can't. I won't let them. That's a fascinating thing going on here at Mount Sinai. The people will want to get close. They'll even be willing to risk their lives. But I won't let them come close. I won't let them because this is the old covenant. And the old covenant says, thus far you may come and no further. Now this teaches me something about God's assessment of us as people. He knows what we really want. What we really want, and we're willing to risk our lives for it. He knows that we want God. That's what we want. So often I've thought about this. You know, it's tough to get up in the morning and have a quiet time. And my flesh is saying, oh, you need sleep. And the answer comes back, no, you need God. You need God. And, and when you're fasting, your body's saying, you need food. No, you need God. You need God. And God knows it. And that's why he says, Moses, be sure you enforce those fences because I mean it. I mean, not that I need to say I mean it because I mean everything I say. But if they go up on that mountain, they're going to be killed. And please don't touch them. Don't lay a hand on them. It reminds me of somebody being electrocuted. If you try to grab them, you get it too. Or somebody with a dread disease. If you try to embrace them and, and deal with them, you'll get it too. So don't touch the person that might go across the barrier because you'll get it too. They become unclean. And so God's saying thus far and no further. Now, aren't you glad that redemptive history didn't end at Mount Sinai? I am. I am so grateful that it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, that Jesus cried out in a loud voice and breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. And the very next verse, Matthew 27:51, says, at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's incredible, isn't it? The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, why from top to bottom? Because it's God's work to open up for us, it says in the book of Hebrews, a new and living way into the very presence of God. That he would open up for us through the body of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, he would open up a way for us to come into the very presence of God. And, and now, not only are we not commanded not to come, not only are the barriers removed, we're actually commanded to draw near. Look with me at Hebrews 10. And we'll see how much things have changed into this new covenant, which the book of Hebrews says so rightly is a superior covenant, is it not? It's a better covenant. Better in every way. Old covenant says, thus far, no further. 
And the day you do these things, you shall surely die. The new covenant promises us life, eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Now that's intimate. To be very close to God, to come into his presence. Look what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Hebrews 10:19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Stop there. Look at that. We have boldness. We have assurance. We have confidence to walk into the holy of holies. Not even the high priest did that. Even on the right day with the right offering did he walk with boldness and confidence into the most holy place. But we actually have boldness and confidence to come into the holy of holies, the most holy place, by, verse 20, a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here comes the command, verse 22, let us draw near to God. Do you see that? Let us draw near to God. Let us come into the very presence of God. The very thing denied in the Old Covenant with that barrier around the bottom of Mount Sinai. The very thing denied to us is now actually commanded of us. Draw near to God. Come very close to God himself. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that we get to come into the very presence of God? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How can we do that? Well, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. No, Psalm 24 is still true. You can't ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place until you have clean hands and a pure heart. But there's only one way to cleanse dirty hands and a filthy heart, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to Sinai. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and that's a good thing. But it's a better thing to have your fears relieved by grace as well. To have Jesus speak peace to your, to your soul because he shed his blood as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that will be set up later in this book. It's a good thing to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and I think we're too flippant with him. I think we're too trivial with him. We forget that our God still is actually a consuming fire. He hasn't changed. He's always been the same. And he hates the sin in your life as much as he hated the sin in anybody's life. He's never changed. But we're in a new covenant now. And that new covenant commands that we should draw near to God. What application do we take from this? I think, number one, fear the Lord. Don't, don't sin with a high hand. Come again to Mount Sinai. Remember that God hasn't changed any from when he did this. Whatever it was that motivated God to come down in thick darkness, in an earthquake, in fire and lightning and thunder, and such a, a loud voice, uh, is still part of his character because he never changes. Well, the fear of the Lord should lead us into obedience. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and look and see this. Deuteronomy 5 gives us another glimpse at what happened at that moment. Deuteronomy 5.22. Right after the Ten Commandments came, this is the account. Deuteronomy 5.22 and following. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. See, this is the thing we forget. God spoke them to the people first. 
Do you see that? Then he wrote them on, you know, I know that Cecil B. DeMille has it differently, but I'd go with the scripture on this one. God spoke them to the people first. That's why when he was up on the mountain and they were making an idol, it was such wicked sin. Because they had already heard directly from God not to make an idol. And they did it anyway. It's incredible. I mean, what is the matter with us? Do you ever wonder that? I mean, that you would hear from God and then just later that day or the next day make a golden calf. What are people thinking? It's just a shocking thing. Let me correct myself. He was up on the mountain for 40 days. So let's give him a couple of weeks of holiness. I mean, really. That they would ever do it again would be amazing. But that they would do it so shortly after the command was spoken to them. What's the matter with us? Well, the answer is wickedness and sin. But it says, then he wrote them on two tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now why should we die? Why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Now you can circle that in your Bible. It may be the only time in the entire Bible that God says that about human beings. Everything they said was good. What did they say? They said, we're afraid. Please go speak to God for us. Be our mediator. We can't listen to him anymore or we will die. God said everything they said was good. And then you see the heart of God in verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it might always go well with them and their children forever. That's God's heart. Oh, he says, there's a, there's a, there's a passion in God. Oh, that they would fear me. Application number two, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Not to earn your way up Mount Sinai. You can't do that. We've already proven that. But you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And thirdly, rejoice that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Rejoice that God has opened for you a way into the very presence of God. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how wicked, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than any sin you could ever commit. Isn't that marvelous? That sin doesn't get the final word on you. Grace does if you're a Christian. The blood of Jesus can cleanse any sin. And so the curtain was, was torn in two from top to bottom. I've often wondered what's priests or Pharisee came along later and sewed it back up. No, I really think about it because the temple went on for another generation, number 30 plus years. And, and I remember I was teaching in a men's Bible study and, and something hit me because it, it was related to Matthew 19 when talking about marriage and it says about marriage there, what God has joined together, let man not separate. But in this case, we would say the opposite. What God has separated, let man not do what? Put it back together. Don't, don't put a barrier in the face of somebody who wants to get close to God now that we're in the new covenant. 
That's the very thing the Pharisees were always doing. You put obstacles in men's faces. You cut, shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You won't let anyone enter in. Uh, Jesus is all about opening the door, opening a new and living way for you into the very presence of God. So enter in. Come very near to the throne of grace when you're tempted. Come very near to the throne of grace when you need help. Come very near to the throne of grace when you've sinned and need forgiveness. Come near to the throne of grace all the time. As a matter of fact, you should live there all the time. Come into the very presence of God. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.